There is no other book in the Bible that uses the word I so many times as do those first chapters of Ecclesiastes. Kohelet's problem was that he kept thinking about himself. It made him rich, powerful, a great success. As for happiness, though, he did not have a chance. Happiness lives in the realm called not I. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 261, The King and the I. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, in describing a man who had a profound impact upon him, told the following story, quote, Many years ago, I went to visit one of the great religious leaders of the 20th century, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. As I sat waiting to see him, I began talking to some of his followers. Among other things, they told me this story. Someone had written to the Rebbe in a state of deep depression. The letter went something like this. I would like the Rebbe's help. I wake up each day sad and apprehensive. I can't concentrate. I find it hard to pray. I keep the commandments, but I find no spiritual satisfaction. I go to the synagogue, but I feel alone. I begin to wonder what life is about. I need help. The Rebbe, Rabbi Sachs continued, wrote a brilliant reply that did not use a single word. All he did was this. He circled the first word of every sentence and sent the letter back. The disciple understood. The Rebbe had answered his question and set him on the path to recovery. The ringed word was I, end quote. The point, of course, is that happiness and meaning are linked to our connection to others. Or, as Rabbi Sachs put it, happiness dwells in the realm of the not I. And this, as he himself noted, offers us an understanding of the book in the Bible that we begin today. The book we now study gives us the teachings of a king of Jerusalem named Kohelet, often translated as preacher, which is taken by tradition to refer to Solomon himself. Many of the reflections therein appear, at least at first, bleak, and it is not immediately obvious what the book seeks to teach us. Interestingly, Rabbi Sachs himself has offered two different readings of the book at different moments in time. And it struck me that these two different interpretations are linked to two different approaches to a word that appears famously in the book, a word that is very difficult to translate. The word in Hebrew is hevel. I will read the well-known opening passage in English, but with the Hebrew word untranslated. The words of Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Hevel havalim, saith Kohelet. Hevel havalim, all is havel. What profit hath a man of all his labor, which he taketh under the sun? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also riseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where it arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to its circuits. All the rivers run unto the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new? It hath been already of old time, which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. What does Hevel mean, and how is it linked to Kohelet's description of life? Today we will interpret Kohelet's message based on the standard rendering of this word. And then tomorrow we will return to another possibility. The usual translation of Hevel is vanity. Hevel Havalim would be vanity of vanities. This is a way of describing the experience of life as devoid of true meaning. Following this interpretation, though he uses a slightly different word, Rabbi Sachs cited the story of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in offering an interpretation of the text. 
Before we present this interpretation, let us first look at the next chapter in the book. Verse 4, Kohelet says, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens, and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men, singers and women singers, and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments, and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Thus we have our accounting of all Kohelet's achievements, and yet for Kohelet, all is still hevel, vanity, devoid of meaning. For Rabbi Sachs, that is precisely the point. He wrote, quote, Poor Kohelet. He was the man who wrote Ecclesiastes. Tradition has long identified him with King Solomon. He was, we recall, the man who had it all and discovered it was not enough. Palaces, gardens, wives, wealth, all promised happiness. None delivered. The more wealth, the more worry. The more knowledge, the more weariness of spirit. In the end, all he could say was meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And then, building on the story of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Sachs added, quote, It is hard to translate a biblical text from classical Hebrew into contemporary English and still preserve the nuances of the original. But Kohelet's problem was the same as that of the letter writer above. I built for myself. I planted for myself. I acquired for myself. In Hebrew, the insistence on the first person singular is striking, reiterated, discordant. There is no other book in the Bible that uses the word I so many times as do those first chapters of Ecclesiastes. Kohelet's problem was that he kept thinking about himself. It made him rich, powerful, a great success. As for happiness, though, he did not have a chance. Happiness lives in the realm called not I. End quote. This point, the prevalence of the I in the opening of Ecclesiastes, is a profound one. And it parallels, I think, in an interesting way, an interpretation of Ecclesiastes by Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. Though Rabbi Sachs focused on bridging the I and others in our life, Rabbi Soloveitchik, in an essay titled The Crisis of Human Finitude, focuses on bridging our individual I with God. The essay reveals the vastness of Rabbi Soloveitchik's intellectual engagement, for it draws on a concept in the writings of the Protestant theologian Emil Brunner. Brunner, in his book The Divine Imperative, critiqued what he saw as the materialism of his era, but with an intriguing twist. Brunner argued that built into our very selves is a God-given desire to seek the infinite, which, of course, is intended to lead us to the Almighty. But that means, Brunner argued, that when we do not commune with God, our quest for infinity can turn into a quest for an infinitude of objects to possess. Here is how Brunner described it, quote, When man is no longer bound to God, he becomes a slave to the world, for indeed this bondage to God is his freedom. The things which are intended to serve man become his masters, to have a mania for things, to be possessed by them. Since men cannot help seeking the infinite, he now seeks the meaning of his life in an infinitude of things. His unfounded passion for things hounds him on from one thing to another. And since he surrounds the thing with the magic glamour of that which is worthy of infinite endeavor, of that which is indispensable, he sacrifices his life to it. He sacrifices his manhood to thinghood. 
This bondage to things inevitably loosens the ties of community. The meaning of things destroys community. Whenever a person is obsessed by this mania, he loses all consideration for others. End quote. Bruner, I think, of course recognizes that the creation and having of things can be a great blessing, indeed a divine blessing. It is only when possession becomes a mania, as he wrote, that it becomes a curse. Bruner calls this curse the daemonic, D-A-E-M-O-N-I-C, which he described as, quote, being enslaved by something finite, which is regarded as infinite and absolute, end quote. Rabbi Soloveitchik applied Bruner's concept in his interpretation of the story of Kohelet. As Rabbi Soloveitchik put it, quote, Kohelet characterizes another form of living, namely the daemonic, to use the term coined by Emil Brunner in the Divine Imperative, pages 23 to 24. Rabbi Soloveitchik adds, The daemonic personality indulges in adventures, risks, and spectacular things. He dreams of vastness and unlimited expanses. And he adds that for the daemonic personality, quote, The driving force is the same. Self-glorification, reaching out for the impossible, the desire for infinity, end quote. This, Rabbi Soloveitchik argued, is what is described in Kohelet. The book is describing a quest for infinitude that never leaves the realm of the eye, or as he put it, quote, Kohelet also leads a closed existence of repose within himself. And then Rabbi Soloveitchik added that Kohelet did not fulfill his destiny as a truism. And this is the lesson which this strange book seeks to impart to us. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Why, Rabbi Soloveitchik continued, was Kohelet disappointed in his glorious career and his stupendous exploits? Why did he lament the vanity of all efforts? Why this pessimistic note which reverberates throughout the whole book? Why the skeptical mood which, because of failure, doubts everything? The answer, by Soloveitchik wrote, is simple. The human existential experience is intrinsically incomplete. Finitude means the absence of wholeness and fullness, end quote. In other words, only in our relationship with others and ultimately through our relationship with the infinite God is fulfillment to be found. And indeed, Kohelet acknowledges this at the end of the book saying, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole of man. Reading Rabbi Soloveitchik's interpretation based on Brunner, I was reminded, if I may, of the scene in the children's book, The Phantom Tollbooth, where the boy Milo, visiting Digitopolis, the land of numbers, goes up a staircase that, he was told, leads to infinity. The stairs go on and on, and eventually Milo meets someone who explains what is happening. Milo is told, quote, one of the things about mathematics, or anything else you might care to learn, is that many of the things which can never be often are. You see, it's very much like you're trying to reach infinity. You know that it's there, but you just don't know where. But just because you can never reach it doesn't mean that it's not worth looking for. End quote. For Jews, there is a journey toward infinity, but it must be done in the right way. It is the meaningful journey toward the infinite God. And this journey also involves our communion with other human beings human beings whose souls are, if I can borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis, patches of godlight in the woods of our experience. Tomorrow, we will offer another interpretation of this biblical book. But today, we conclude one approach, an approach that might title this book, The King and Not I, for it is only in the realm of the not I that we discover our true meaning. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.